Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our board slash OITE reviews featuring myself, Dr. Cole, and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. And just to let everybody know, be on the lookout for the podcast companion book. It should be actually coming out pretty soon. So we'll put a link in the description of this episode where you can actually go and sign up to be notified a little bit earlier than the rest of the population about the release. And those of you that signed up earlier before previously for the ebook got a nice surprise. And we first let it out for 99 cents for everybody that had signed up on the email before it's the normal price so that being said you should sign up on your email put your name on there it takes 30 seconds but without further ado let's go ahead and continue and talk some more adult reconstruction you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole um when you're templating uh where is the ideal location of the acetabular component? Yeah. And, um, and I mean, that was, that was a good point that you just made with the hips and the, in the spine. I think that's why I know, at least I know some of our teams will use like um, dual mobility cups um, in patients that have like, you know, bad, you know, back, back motion or lumbopelvic motion, um, you know, to, they may use those types of implants. So we'll get to implants a little bit later on. But so when templating, um, the ideal location for the acetabular cup is going to be in the center of the hip. Um, immediately, you would like it at the right at the ilioischial line, which we talked about way back when, when we did, uh, when we talked about trauma. And then inferiorly, you want the, the inferior board to be at the, te- at the teardrop. So when you see a, an x-ray up there, status pulse to total hip arthroplasty, instead of just saying, oh, it looks good. You could say, oh, I like the you know position of the cup. And the cup looks like it's in the center of the hip. It looks like it's you know sufficiently medialized to the iliacal line. And inferiorly, you know, it's right at the border of the teardrop. So I, I really like the position of the cup. That makes you sound a little bit more, you know, like you know a little bit more of what's going on and saying, oh, it looks <laughs> good when, when it really doesn't. <laughs> um, and, and so when templating, um, where is the, or what is the ideal location for the femoral stem when we're looking at the templating for these total hips? So the, uh, stem center, uh, should line up with the tip of the greater trochanter and the canal should be filled, uh, with the stem meaning, or the, the, uh, obviously this is, um, very basic because we're not talking about uh, metaphyseal versus diaphyseal fits right. here, but for a standard routine total hip where you're doing a press fit metaphyseal stem, the entire proximal portion should be filled by the uh, stem and the 
uh, center of the stem distally should be pointing down the middle of the uh, canal. Uh, you don't, uh, in, you may have seen this in, in residency where the stem, the tip of the stem points to lateral. And that, what that means is that the hip stem is in varus. And uh, the ideally you would want it to point down the femoral shaft because the, uh, that's recreating the anatomic axis. And that's how these implants are basically designed as they get native femurs and they design what is the best fit and best position for these. And they want that tip of the stem to go down the femoral shaft. And so that's what you're aiming for when you're broaching and placing your final component. And so uh, ideally after a total hip, where do you want the center of the stem and acetabulum to be in relation to each other? Yeah. So ideally you want them to be at the same point. So those dots should overlap and it'll, it'll make sense once you see a question or you see something with templating there, there are little dots around the stem as well as the center of the cup. And ideally you want those dots to overlap. So, um, you know, what's a good way to think about the changes that'll happen when templating, you know, like when you're, when you're, looking at all these different templating options and you're like, okay, well, if I put the stem here and the cup here, this is what this will be like. What is a good way to think about, you know, the change that'll happen? The, uh, so the templating software and uh, like you have to do in residency now where you have the software to template, we had to do a similar thing um, in my residency where uh, like every Wednesday morning or whatever, um, you would get next week's cases and you would template them and kind of present it to our four arthroplasty attendings. And basically by saying like, oh, I templated a 56 cup with a size six stem with this offset and all of this stuff, then it, it starts to make sense. But you will get asked on the OITE 100% at least once in your five years, uh, a templating style question where they will talk about um, like hip center. And if you place the uh, acetabular component uh, superior, what will that do to the leg length? It will shorten the leg length because you're placing the hip center too high and the femur has to sit in a too high position. If you place the acetabular component inferior to the native hip center, you will lengthen the leg. Um, those are typically the two that they talk about the most. It has to deal with where the uh, acetabular component is placed because that is really the most important portion of this because it's, it's really where you put the hip that the acetabular component is where the hip is going to be, where the hip center is going to be, and the stability of the hip is really generated through the acetabular component rather than the femoral component. And so they typically don't ask femoral component questions because they are, it is much uh, more variable and easier to fix than an acetabular issue. So um, if you, uh, like, like I said before, if you place the, acetabulum too low, you lengthen the leg. If you place the acetabulum too high, you shorten the leg. If you place the acetabulum more medial, 
well, we're going to go back to that. They may show here's a templated total hip with a acid tabular component that is medial to the native hip. Then they may say, what will this do to the joint reactive forces? Well, it's going to decrease the joint reactive forces because you're medializing the hip. So it, that's how they're going to test you. And that's how they're going to make you think about several different uh, concepts all in one question. Yeah. And, and, and one thing I want to add on that is, is one of our attendings explained this uh, 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 well to a, well to us at one point. So shout out to Dr. Apple, who I'm sure will never listen to this podcast, but thank you for explaining this. Um, and some of the questions that I've seen, like they'll have the acetabulum in place, like, you know, perfectly like where it should be, you know, immediately to the initial line, inferiorly down to the level of the teardrop and right in the center. And then they'll have like the where the stem would be in like, so for example, the, the little hole um, or the circle on the stem will be like, for example, more superior and lateral to the acetabulum. And you're saying a good way to think about it is that if you reduce the femur to the, to the acetabulum, you bring that, you make those lines overlap, that's what's going to happen. So if initially the stem they have it more suit like the little dot at the tip of the stem is more superiorly immediately when you reduce it you're gonna have to bring the stem um uh when you reduce the femur to the acetabulum you bring the whole femur down immediately so you will lengthen the the hip and lose a little bit of offset so you'll lengthen it by bringing the whole femur down and you'll lose a little offset because you're bringing the whole femur immediately to allow those two circles to overlap mm-hmm. and if uh and if what i said just thoroughly confused everybody a little bit more um uh go check it out on um on the internet like google it and there's actually a really good um book it's like it's called the hip and knee book that has like really good um, pictures um, and explanations of a lot of this this total hip and total knees stuff and concepts um, that is it was a really good source um, to read and check out if you want a little bit of deeper dive into it. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about Rock. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, Rock covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to Rock content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. But uh, continuing forth, I think, I think we we be in um, biomechanics and templating to death, uh, and and moving forth. This is we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about just implants and total hip arthroplasty, and a lot of this uh, may not one hundred percent be you be seen on the test, but still good to know. So we'll talk a little bit about total hips and a little bit about implants, and one of the things that are, that we always get asked about are the approaches to the hips. So what are some common approaches used in total hip arthroplasty? Yeah, I, I want to go back briefly. And I, yeah, I think yeah, that's a point it. that you brought up with the templating is the the templating, uh, like you said, most often you're, you're going to template the acetabulum in a certain place and the femur in a certain place. And so it's, 
yeah, you have to uh, kind of mentally think about what happens to the leg when you reduce the hip, when you put that femoral component that is now stuck in the femur in the acetabulum that is now stuck in the pelvis, what happens? And, uh, and I think that point gets kind of brushed over because it's, it makes sense if you know what you're doing when you're templating, but if you don't think about it, then you're like, Oh, well, if I put the implants here, now the legs too short. And it's like, well, no, you have to actually put the femur into the acetabulum. And now you actually might lengthen the leg rather than shorten it. So I think that's a good point is you have to think about what a reduced hip will look like rather than what the template looks like. Yeah. But kind of going back to uh, common approaches used in total hip and there's always the, the anterior crowd, the posterior crowd. Now there's the super path <laughs> and all of that stuff, but the, they're not going to test you on the super path uh, approach for the OIT probably for another 10 years until it becomes a little bit more mainstream. But you have the anterior approach, which is kind of the Smith-Peterson approach. You have the direct lateral approach or the hardinge. You have the anterior uh, anterolateral approach, which is the Watson-Jones, and then the posterior or posterolateral approach, which is the southern. And I would say 95% of people are either doing anterior or posterior with the other several percent still doing either a direct lateral or anterolateral approach. So, um if you are uh, going into an anterior hip case, what are the intervals and structures at risk? Yeah, so anterior approach, superficially, uh, you're working between the sartorius and the TFL, the tensile fasciolata. Those are supplied by different nerves, you should know. Sartorius is going to be the femoral nerve, and the tensile fasciolata will be the superior gluteal nerve. So I think I've seen that question asked before. So that's going to be the superficial interval uh, once you in, you know, you, everybody does them a little differently, but you will incise the fascia over the sartorius, uh, retract that posteriorly, and you may uh, incise the fascia that's over the uh, overlying the rectus. So deep interval is going to be between the rectus and the gluteus medius. And when you start to incise the floor of the, um, of the sheath of the, or the floor of the fascia of the rectus, you will run into these branches of the lateral circumflex artery. So the ascending branch of the lateral um, circumflex artery is going to be at risk at this point. And I forgot to mention a little bit earlier in our superficial um, dissection, when you make that skin incision, the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve pierces to the fascia um, right around the sartorius area. So that's something else that could be injured. Um, so the pros for the anterior approach and I swear you can read like 10 different studies and see 10 different things. But uh, some of the pros and different things is that, you know, you can have an earlier recovery because you're working through an internervous plane, the femoral nerve of the sartorius and the superior gluteal nerve with the tensor fasciolata. And then the cons um, is that you may have limited acetabular exposure and some say limited femoral exposure as well. But then I talked to our anterior hip guys and they're like, that's acetabular exposure is great. And so is the femoral exposure. So, you know, um, I think everybody has their preference. Um, what is the interval for the anterior lateral Watson Jones approach? Uh, yeah, so we actually use this approach uh, a bit in residency with one of the attendings, and then we had 
several guys come in in the later years of my residency that were more posterior only and then one who's anterior only and now we have kind of a mix and so the anterolateral for me personally it's a strange approach but uh, it is what it is basically you're going between TFL and gluteus medius so you are uh, more lateral than the direct anterior but you still access the hip anterior so the theoretical benefit is that you don't disrupt any posterior structures and you have a more uh, native uh, posterior stability the downside to it is you do have to release some of the abductors to gain access to the hip and when you release some of the uh, abductors off and you do an anterior capsulotomy these patients tend to have a little bit more of a Trent Ellenberg style gait. You also run the risk of denervating the tensor fasciolata if you uh, retract it too much and you place tension on uh, the um, superior gluteal nerve that passes uh, into it kind of at the superior portion of this approach. So there, there are some risks associated with it. Um, and so what about the direct lateral hard hinge approach? Yes, yeah, this is exactly what it sounds like. You're going directly lateral. So you're splitting the gluteus medius as well as vastus lateralis to gain access down to the capsule and then the hip joint. And one of the cons with this is you may have prolonged muscle recovery since you're splitting the muscle right in half. Um, what is the posterior southern approach to the hip? This is the one I think I've seen the most. Yeah, so this is where you would do a, you find the natural plane and the glute, uh, gluteus maximus, you split it, you place your charnley retractor, and you do a posterior lateral release off the femur where you get the short external rotators and a posterior capsulotomy. The Cons to this are you you do go posterior, and just like we know, when you um, kind of damage a structure going into it, then it's going to be weaker as it develops scar tissue. So the risk is that the posterior structures are now weak, and you don't have a natural native buttress for posterior dislocation. But I don't know for me that this is the approach I use, and it is. It's kind of one of those that everybody kind of comes back to where they, if they did posterior, then they go to a course and they try anterior and they try anterior for a couple of years and they aren't happy with it. And then they go back to posterior or they try the hard hinge approach or they try this. And it just seems like posterior is kind of the, the safe and comfortable home for most surgeons. And so that's why I use it because it's safe and comfortable for me. Um, but uh, when, when you're in arthroplasty conference and the attendings or senior residents are talking about, oh, the acetabular component, um, and you're the junior resident sitting in there and <laughs> we're just on call overnight and now you're struggling to stay awake in conference in the morning, what, what is the, the actual acetabular component? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're going to test on this, but this is like, you know, joints and implants, basics 101. So figure we might as well talk about it. But the acetabular component, just like you said, you're going to have a, typically you have a metal shell, which is going to be smooth on the inside and then possibly porous coated on the outside. And then you have a liner that sits inside of that metal shell. 
And that liner can be made up of different materials. It can be made up of polyethylene. Sometimes it can be a metal or ceramic as well. And so this is just for a uh, press fit design. So this is a cementless press fit design. You have a metal shell, which again, smooth on the inside, porous coated on the outside. And then you have a liner that goes inside of that shell, which can be made of different substances like polyethylene, or sometimes it's a metal or ceramic. What are some different fixation options for acetabular cups? Yeah, just like you said, cemented or cementless. I would say cementless is by far the most common with a press fit uh, type of acetabular component. Um, some people put a screw or two in every cup they do. Some only put screws in when they want to. So they're, they're not going to test you on should this acetabular component have a screw because it's too uh, subjective. Uh, titanium cups are common, and I think the main reason for that is because uh, you under-ream typically by uh, a millimeter for the reamers, and so you want a metal that is going to be flexible enough to fit into an, a millimeter uh, under-reamed space, but not be so rigid that as you impact it, uh, it's going to fracture the, the acetabulum. So uh, titanium grit blasted cups are the most common. Um, all polyethylene cups may be used as well. Um, and they are uh, all cemented. Um, and the reason for using those, uh, I guess I use it typically more than most because of the revision nature of my practice and the oncology nature of my practice using uh, cages. And so when you put a cage in to reconstruct the structure of the acetabulum, you can get a bigger polyethylene and a bigger femoral head to fit in that polyethylene if you just do a polyethylene uh, cemented in there rather than making space for a metallic component and a polyethylene component. And so all polyethylene cups are cemented. Um, and what are uh, some of the complications that can occur with the use of an acetabular cup? Yeah, one of these that you just mentioned not too long ago when, we were, when you were talking about the different types of metals that you can use for the cups. But um, during impaction, when you're, pushing, when you're putting the acetabular cup in, um, you can have a fracture during impaction. Um, if it's an incomplete fracture, some people add screws, but if it's a complete fracture of the acetabulum, I think the book answer is going to be for an open reduction and in internal fixation of the acetabulum. Um, another complication seen with acetabular cups is going to be periacetabular osteolysis. And, you know, a little bit of the design of the cup can help um, at least let you know where some of the osteolysis is going to occur. So if you have a cup that has a lot of holes in the actual cup itself, so a lot of holes that could be filled with screws, um, you may have retro acetabular lysis will be a little bit more common. So osteolysis behind the acetabulum that you could see on x-ray. But there's a cup and there's no holes. Uh, you may have um, more likely to have some proximal femur osteolysis. Um, and we'll talk about where and stuff a little bit later, but this is just a little taste of, uh, of, of what may happen with some of these acetabular cups.
Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. If you have not already, subscribe and leave a rating and a review. That would help us a bunch. We're trying to get to 200. Let's see if we can do it. All right, everybody. We'll see you next episode.